Gambit podcast. Today is episode five, and it is Let's Party International Edition, where we're talking about language-independent party games. Joining you today, as always, is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Welcome, everyone. So when we were looking forward to talking about non-language party games and independently languaged games how are you doing things are good the challenge for the board game a day is going strong i just completed yesterday day 109 so that is almost a third of the way there (laughs) we're getting there uh we have definitely run out of quick games the few that i have are emergency i'm down to like rationing the quick games like if we don't have any time at all what can i throw on the table and do in 15 minutes Well, that sounds hard enough in regular times now that game provisioning and people bringing in new games without you having to buy it and all of that is cut off. It it sounds even harder. When I started the challenge, I was really hoping to get a lot of games in there that I don't own. So that way I could make it to the 300 because I do or 366 this year. But I didn't anticipate self-quarantining because I thought that I would get a lot of other people's games in here, which I started off really well with getting, you know, maybe every three or four was someone else's game. So that way I wouldn't run out of games so quickly, but I'm very quickly running out of games. Funny enough, I was looking at my year so far, and while I definitely don't play a game a day, but in terms of playing different games, I'm almost keeping up with you. I'm at a hundred different games played since January 1st, so I'm trying. That makes sense, though, because you play more than one. Me and Scott usually just play the one, the scheduled game of the day. Yeah, we tend to accumulate them in the weekends during weeknights, despite at the beginning of this, we were like, oh, we like board games, so it's going to be easy. We will play every night. Instead, work gets in the way, students email, delayed things that we have to attend, night seminars. And so we mostly play in the weekend. And even then... I think we tend to fall into uh, let's play the same game, if not in a row, at least multiple times because we have refreshed the rules, we have refreshed our passion for it. And so we tend to play the same multiple times. But we also are trying to make a conscious effort of looking at, okay, let's start with something that we haven't played in a while and then move to the current favorite or the one game that we wanted to overcome or something yeah definitely my shelf of shame is going to be much much smaller because this is really forcing me to look at those games that have been on my shelf for a long time and a why are they there b (laughs) why don't i know them and c do they need to stay there after i play through them well why they don't have a shelf of shame Per se, I have one game that we haven't played that we got at PAX East, and it's a three-plus player game. And then basically two months later, when I had just learned it, we were cut off from our friends and gaming acquaintances. But there are a few games over the last few months, even before all of this went down, but particularly now, I have a few games that I really want to get rid of. And though they sit in that weird situation where they are not small or insignificant enough that I feel fine with either throwing them away, but they are not accessible enough that you can just bring them to goodwill and someone will enjoy them. And so those are normally the ones that either trade at conventions or, as you know, in May and October, normally we have a three days mini convention at home. And so we 
tell people, well, get one and go home with it. And so now they are piling up and they don't know where to put them. But yeah, we're doing a good job. Although there are so many that can only be played with multiple people or that only shine at multiple people count. As you know, I have strong beliefs in playing the right game with the right number of people. And that's hard now. Oh, definitely. I really enjoy raids from Yellow. Oh, yeah. But it is not a two-player game. You have to basically create a dummy player that's a ghost ship. And they put all this like thought into making like a story behind it, a story behind the mechanic. And I just, I would rather play it with real people instead of a dummy player. I don't really particularly like dummy players in a lot of the games that I've played. I don't know. I feel like at that point, why don't you just play a video game? Fair enough. If dummy players simply take space, I actually do appreciate them quite a bit. The dummy players in Solkin, the dummy players in Taramara, the one I played recently, or the dummy player in Teotihuacan, everything that simply is there and takes away space, I'm fine, or Coimbra, they remove certain cards. But when they simulate some kind of movement, even moving on the board or just trying to act somehow, no, (laughs) it's a no for me. Yeah, I feel like that is something different for me. When I think of a dummy player, it's a mechanism that is made to make this not person act like a person. Whereas Zolkin, I don't feel like that's a dummy player. I feel like that's just trying to limit the worker placement. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a little different. Yeah, fair enough. It's like games in Cold Baron, the spaces you can take are reduced if you are fewer players. And simply the fact that they don't use player pieces doesn't make it any different than than Solkin. You're absolutely, absolutely right. It's also weird because there are certain games that I don't want to play with more. So there are especially... I have a few games, not many, but there are a few games on my shelf that I realize I only want to play with three players. And I realized that not by thinking, oh, I will only ever play it with three, but by the fact that when we were more, I didn't want to play it because there were too many people. And now I <laughs> don't want to play them because we are two people. Ninjato is the only one that I know of that I always say I only play this with three. And I think I have another game that is Trieste that is designed only for three. But there are a few where I'm now realizing, oh, I would like to play this with one more player. Isn't The King is Dead 3? The King is Dead is another one. You're absolutely right. It has a two-player version, which is somehow interesting, but it's very reactionary. And the four-player game is supposed to be played with teams. So that could be interesting. I've never tried it with four. That's a game that, despite me personally liking it and appreciating it, I feel like that's in the next call because we don't play it ever. And that's a sign of a game that needs to go at some point. Yeah, I played it with you once, I think. I find it fascinating because it's an abstract, basically, although despite the veneer of King is dead and you have to set apart the land, the factions are just cylinders that do nothing. They enter a space and they create a majority. So it's an air control abstract. But I find that it's basically a game where you have eight cards And those are the eight actions that you will play in the game throughout eight rounds or so. And you can play as many as you want in the same round. And you are trying to play them at the right time so that when the scoring comes, and the scoring is not random, it depends on the conditions that are created on the board, you will be in a scoring position. And that's why it's particularly good at three, because with two, and I imagine with two teams, it's a lot of, oh, Nathan gain an advantage there, then I will try to take either his advantage out or gain advantage elsewhere. While with three, is much more, okay, I can counterbalance what Nathan does, but then the third person 
just runs away with it. So I need to counterbalance it a little bit and open up another front for the third person to have to care for. And that's where it shines. Are there any area majority games that you particularly like it to? I feel like that might be true of most of the area control games being that if it's two players, it may just be you take this, then I take this. And because that's how it feels like in The Godfather when you're playing it with just two. I mean, there are a lot of other things that go into it when you're playing that because you're completing the jobs and literally removing the people from the different places that they've played. But it is sort of this like back and forth. Do you think there's any area control games that really shine it to? Small World, it's an area control game. But I find that the strongest thing that Small World has going for itself is that it scales perfectly. I love it at two, I love it at three, and I love it with four or five. It's a game that not only I like a lot, but that no matter the number, I will play gladly. But I don't know if that's really area majority or area control and everything else that I can think of indeed doesn't work as well. Even things very light, like Royals, it's not as well with two, I guess. So you're probably absolutely right. So what have you been playing this week? So besides completing the Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle monster box, which was a super hard call, it turned a basic game that was way too easy into something very, very hard. I still have some issues with it, but it was very fun. Played a few things uh, that we hadn't played in a while. Wait, what was the expansion called? Monster Box of Monsters. Isn't there another expansion for that too? The Dark Arts or something? Which just came out, right? Or recently came out. Yes. Uh, yeah, we don't have that, although I know that it's in my feature because Anna really, really, really likes the game. I am baffled by it. It has a lot of very good things. It has a very straightforward deck building game. It has an intelligent AI that does a lot of different things. It interacts with your deck in a very smart way. The one problem that I have is that basically in Harry Potter, obviously you are the heroes of the game. And all of the villains from all of the books and the creatures are contributing to try and take over locations. Usually it's Hogwarts, but there are a couple of other scenarios that you can play. And there are some interesting steps towards defeating them. And also you're fighting them. Everyone has a very distinct particular ability. And all of the cards that you can draw, you can either gain currency to buy new cards, or you can gain damage to damage the enemies. Some of the enemies from the expansions do require the same currency that you use to buy cards. And there are timing mechanisms and there are two different ways in which the game tries to stop you. Actually, three. One ongoing, one are the enemies that activate on their turn, and then you have some random events. So it's very rich and a puzzle that is hard to navigate. Often you ask, well, should I spend the coin there? Should I activate this thing? It's a very good co-op in that often you have to balance a bigger advantage for you with a smaller advantage spread out. And the way you can interact with other people losing health is very interesting. The one thing that I feel it's a big flaw of the game is that whenever you die, you're immediately reset and the game progresses towards you losing. And there are other things that add to this tracker. And that's perfectly fine. It's a good way to keep out the tension. But there are cards in your deck that can stop that. And it seems that you need them. But if you get them too early in the game, you stop the game in its tracks. And then it doesn't rise the difficulty level. And then you basically know that it's going to be a long and slow win, but it's going to be a win. It's rare for it to happen now that there is the expansion. It's very common in the base game. But the fact that they didn't maybe balance out, 
okay having fewer things that progress this tracker, but not giving the players any possibility of pushing it back and balance it out that way, I think would have been a much, much better design with just that little twist. I mean, don't get me wrong, I know it's a popular game. I don't know who the designer is because it's not on the box, which is strange. But yeah, I feel that that would have made a good game into an excellent game. I remember enjoying it when we played it. I think that was one of the times that I stayed and we had just a stretch of days (laughs) when I wasn't working. I love that. Yeah. And then we played that for a few days And I think we got pretty far into it. I don't remember completing the base game. So it makes it more challenging. Do you think it's better per se with it? Absolutely. It also introduces certain things that you have to take care of, which is not simply defeating the enemies, that improves and provides some very interesting choices, which were not in the base game. I still like the base game with that exception that I said. It's also the kind of cooperative game that I think I like, in which it really requires to interact. If you play only your turn, you're going to lose. If you simply focus on accumulating better cards you're gonna lose so you have to keep an eye the special abilities of the different characters are all targeted toward making other people gain currency or gain damage or heal their own health rack and i think that's very solid but i do think that the expansion improves on that provides new abilities so it's not so much the variety actually i couldn't tell you how many cards it adds i feel that compared to other expansions for these kind of things is not the number of new things yeah there are a few new creatures and there are a few new cards that you put in your pool but the big thing is the few new mechanism that really really work so my issue with co-ops in general is not having that autonomy on your turn to really make your own decision where there's a very clear answer to the puzzle that's presented in front of you. That I feel like is my issue in general with co-ops, but I feel like this game really allows you to look at a lot of different avenues, even though there may be something that is the best in that moment. It really requires you to look at other players and work together to get through everything because, like you said, it does count on a lot of other player powers and really working together, which really is refreshing in a co-op to try and see that it's actually trying to make you work together, whereas sometimes I feel like it can just be bullied into, this is the right way, this is what needs to be done in this moment, this is the only way we can do this any other decision and you're ruining the game. I feel like this game in particular has a lot of opportunities for discussion. Yes, absolutely. First, I do feel that it's balanced towards a higher number of players. Even when we play two players, we play two characters each, which also helps with the doing your own thing because doing your own thing becomes two characters. So it models up the water and what you're doing becomes often a concerted thing. But I feel that people like to say that the alpha player problem is a player problem, not a game problem. And I certainly agree. I have played with people who want to basically direct other players at the table. And I certainly try to avoid that. But I must say that I noticed I'm way more selective of who I play cooperative games with than I am with non-cooperative games because it is a very hard line to balance. So when we play with Anna, we have played our cops mostly the same number of times with very few exceptions. And so we have a 
healthy back and forth. But even when we try to bring someone in, we try to put them in a position where they can make their own decision. And I struggle very hard to say what I think other people should do. I am way more of the opinion of you make your choice than after you have made your choice. We can discuss whether someone would have done something different. Because A, it fastens the game, not just this one, but in general. If you, okay, you have made your choice, so out of the possible infinite range of possibility, you have narrowed down to one, let's talk about whether that was the best choice. And I do think that there is a certain amount of player behavior, but the way this game tries to limit that is obfuscating things. Often the best choice is depending on what will happen. So you can hedge your bets, but you cannot rule out the possibility of your choice being wrong for something that is not completely unforeseen because you know it's in the deck. So you go, well, this is better unless this happens, right? And so there is some mitigation there. A game that I played this week was Curios from AEG. It doesn't have a listed designer but it's just from AEG. So it's a deduction slash bluffing game that I think you guys might actually like. Have you ever heard of it or tried it? No. How is it spelled? C-U-R-I-O-S. No, I haven't seen it. I haven't heard of it. You are archaeologists and you're looking for artifacts in four different places. The artifacts are worth a specific amount that's set at the beginning of the game you don't know what they are, but there are four cards, one, three, five, and seven. And in a two-player game, you each get four cards, and then there's a deck in the center. In higher player counts, the cards are distributed evenly among everybody. And you start off with five pawns, and there are five columns on each of the different locations. And so to get an artifact from there, you put as many pawns as fit on the leftmost row. So if you're the first one there, you put one and you get an artifact. If you're the next person, you have to put two and then three and then four and four. So you run out of pawns relatively quickly, but you have limited information as to what is the highest scoring place. And then going forward, on future rounds, you can get an additional pawn, but you have to reveal one card from your hand. So that way other people are made aware of what the artifact could possibly not be worth. Okay. It's fun. It's really short. You play until two of the artifact piles are gone. And I think Scott and I, when we played it, I lost by a point. It was one of those like sneaky wins. So how does this work with two? So you each have four, and then there's a deck in the middle, and so each turn the deck in the middle reveals a card. Okay, that makes sense. I'm looking at images and I'm trying to make sense of how it works. It feels like it's really a permutation of other things. So it sounds fun or at least enjoyable, but do you feel like you would play this over other games in that ilk of trying to figure out what's happening i don't know it's different i mean biblios i feel like is the next level up from this i feel like the complexity is much higher because there's so many different choices to make throughout the game whereas this game it's a lot lighter i feel like it's a lot more easily accessible not that biblios is very hard to teach or hard to understand 
but I feel like this game is even lighter than the mechanisms of Biblio. So I feel like this is a really good game to play with people who maybe typically aren't gamers, but I would be interested to see how this would play with four people who were gamers. Fair enough. I hadn't seen it, but the components look nice, with the exception of the pawns, maybe. Yeah, the pawns are weird colors. White, black, orange, pink, purple... Speaking of small games, you mentioned Biblius, a game that is very different also because it's just two players, but feels in the same level of simple rules that can get complex fast. Have you played Jaipur? Yes. And that's another one that we played this week, and I really, really liked it. So Jaipur is extremely simple. You have a hand of cards, which are different suits, basically, and you either get new cards but you have a hand limit or you trade cards with the row of other cards in the middle and you're trying to collect sets that correspond to gems the end whoever has the highest value of different goods uh, wins the game and there is a lot of back and forth buying stuff is not particularly inspiring they have some bonuses for buying more at the same time that you have to keep track of but where it really shines is the fact that every time you gain something from the middle row you flip something else for the opponent and there are certain cards that are clearly more desirable so you are trying to balance getting the cards you need with the not opening up options for your opponent and i hadn't played it in too long i found it really really tense and i definitely want to go back to it it was a great experience to revisit it it had been more than a year since we last played it it used to be a game that we played all the times and it's another one like you said with biblios uh, last time we talked about it that you can play with players of different gaminess i played it with my mother i played it at home i played it with friends that we hadn't played many games and it always worked fine of course there are certain strategies that emerge from repeated play but i find it's very very deep for how quick and easy it is yeah i have that game physical version and the app version i really like it have you played the campaign in the app i started i have so many <laughs> so many games to play that it's hard for me to really complete any sort of campaign what else did you play? Another two-player game, which was Zodiac Clash. Have you heard of it? Nope. You're losing me with all of these new flashy <laughs> titles. So Zodiac Clash is very pretty. It is a game that is only two players, and you play as different Zodiac signs, and each Zodiac sign has its own individual power that lets you break one of the rules in the game for yourself what you're doing is you you get two actions of four possible actions and it's place a star remove a star move or rotate the only ones that you can do twice are the move and the rotate the placing a star and the removing of a star can only be once per turn so you are moving around this board which is rotating and scott kept calling it connect four <laughs> it looks like it which it kind of is, but like a 3D connect for almost because you're trying to line things up in a column that is constantly changing. Whereas connect for is just that stagnant getting four in a row. I really thought that this game was very pretty when I first saw it at Gen Con and I found it on clearance. So <laughs> it was an easy purchase for me, but it is a lot of fun. It's a good two-player game that I would happily go back to. Originally, it says to start with your specific Zodiac sign when you play, but I would be interested to see how the other signs play. <laughs> oh, because there are a different set of cards? So each one has a different little mini. Okay. 
which are super cute, but each one has just a card that lists their player power. Okay. Yeah, this doesn't look my kind of thing. It is both spatial and quite abstract, which it's probably not my thing, but it is very nicely produced. Yeah. Oh, going away for a moment from what we have played and speaking of nicely produced, we usually don't talk about Kickstarter much here, but I saw that you backed the Zoo little game, whatever it's called. <laughs> Zulywood. Yeah, and it looks super, super nice. Again, I don't know how much I would enjoy playing it, but the look of it is fantastic. Speaking of two-player abstract games. <laughs> oh, that's abstract too. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. That's way cuter than this, though. Oh, yeah. It has little penguins, and then I got the little miniature pack, and then there are little walruses. It's adorable. Don't know much about it other than you're moving around and you have eggs that turn into penguins, but I like all of those kinds of games. I own quite a few of those games, like Yinch, which I don't know if you've played that before. I've seen it, but I didn't particularly like it. It's part of the GIF project. Yeah. <laughs> you sound so upset. <laughs> Having to talk about it. So those are a bunch of different abstract games that can allegedly be played together. I don't know how that would work, but I've played quite a few of them by themselves. And So and when you say allegedly played together with other people in the rare case where you find someone else who might like them, that's what you mean? <laughs> no, I mean, you can somehow combine the games within this GIF project. I don't know. I have not tried that because the games in and of themselves are complex enough that I don't feel the need or desire to go ahead and make them more complex. Fair enough, make them a super game. Right, a four-hour game of six games combined. <laughs> what you really need is people getting these kind of super cute teams and super cute pieces and making regular strong euros. I think the one that got closer was Takenoko, which still is not the heaviest of euros, but it has a solid game behind it. And despite the cute panda and the cute bamboos, I want like the next Tolkien instead of being Teotihuacan or the new Central American theme that they did, Daniele Tashini needs to get on a penguin base game or something like that <laughs> and release this. Oh, this is a two hour to two hour and a half euro with multiple paths to victory, different engines and worker placement and cute penguins that's what i need well if you hear this <laughs> get started <laughs> you have at least one customer or two yes two customers you have two customers solid basis to start planning out a game what else have you played keeping in the we did a day basically of small games and we played two that i think are criminally underrepresented in our gaming environment. One was Marquise. It was one of the ones we got in Essen when we were still living in Europe. And I think it got hurt by its overproduction, which is something that I now wouldn't be a problem. But at the time, I think it wasn't as common. It comes in, or it used to come, I don't think it exists anymore, in a, in a wooden squared box with little engravings, and it has metal coins. 
and it's a very quick two to four player game that scales well, although the game changes significantly depending on the player number. And you have four cards and you play one on the table and that determines how many coins you get from the middle, whether you steal cards from the other players, basically each card that you play has some cards that they steal from. Then if you make it to your next turn with your coins intact and unstolen, you can convert those into gems. And everyone has the same exact deck, so the order in which you see and play your cards is very tense, because you know what's coming. You just have to hope that your opponent doesn't have the right card. It's 16 cards total, so it's not that complicated, but it can give certain interesting choices. And the other small one that I wanted to mention in a similar passing way is the great heartland holding company have you seen this one no it's a game about trucks which is generally a theme that excites me to no level i have completely no interest in this you know that i usually don't like pick up and delivery games but this is so cleverly done you basically lay out cards to make the routes and it's super simple rule wise you play fuel cards number from one to three to move around or you can pay points to move around you play cards to load things where you are then you move elsewhere you play cards to unload things where you are and you get points coins for doing that the first one to a certain set of points wins i'm horrible at it because it is after all a pickup and delivery but it takes half an hour it gives me everything that i might want in the pickup and delivery game without all of the superfluous things and it's very interesting and it is in a probably eight by four inches box it's really cute looking at it it has a purple truck which is an interesting player color i like it and it's by dice Hate me studio jason kotarski is the designer who also did that drop which was popular at the time but none of these grows to great popularity i mean great heartland holding companies out of the top 1000 but i i still really like it do you have one last one for us i can talk about automobiles sure automobiles is by david short published by aeg and this game is a bag building racing game so basically what you're doing is you're buying different cubes, which represent different actions. As you're pulling them, you can either use them for money to buy more cubes, or you can use them for their effects. There are also different cubes, which simply represent movement on certain portions of the track, which are color-coded. And some of those are worth money that you can also spend if you're not in the right track area but it's a lot of fun it was very tense i sneaked ahead of scott by two spaces at the end of the game so you go around and it's very thematic and you're racing and you're trying to catch up and i thought scott had almost lapped me at one point and i was like there's no way i'm gonna win there's no way and then i pulled the exact right cubes that i needed and i made it almost all the way around the board. So it has a lot of tension because it's a racing game. So you can see the person, you know, pulling ahead or you falling behind. And I don't particularly care for racing games, but this one I feel like is simple enough that I enjoy it. The other thing that is a mechanism of the game is you get wear, which is from doing things, your car gets wear on it. Those get tossed into your bag and they sort of just clog up your bag, which are just these brown cubes that aren't worth anything, <laughs> and they are just there. 
Mm-hmm. So that can get frustrating when you pull out like two cubes that are usable and the rest are all where. How many do you say you pull every turn? Seven. Okay. So it's a lot of fun. I really like it. The thing that people sometimes compare it to is Quacks of Quedlingburg, mm-hmm. but that's just because it's a bag building game. It's not really a push your luck so much as Quacks of Quedlingburg is. This is you're drawing exactly seven every turn. So then, and I like that you are drawing these seven and it's kind of independent on what the other person does. So you can sort of plan out your turn while the other person is taking theirs. So it goes quickly once you know what you're doing. It went by relatively quickly and I enjoyed it. But the one thing that bothers me about it is the ending is not very thematic. So you would think that, oh, once you cross the finish line, that person wins. No. What? (laughs) (laughs) Right? No, that's not how it goes. So you make sure that everyone has the same amount of turns and the person who's farthest across the finish line wins. I think they're pulling that directly from Formula D, which is another very popular racing game that we used to own. We actually liked it, but we played it out in the end. That was dice-based and you knew what choices you needed to make and it came down to rolling the right dice hence the need for a bunch of new tracks but we didn't want to keep buying tracks so we just got rid of the game this looks very interesting actually i would like playing it when looking at the board i really like it because i like the idea of the racing cars then when i look at the cards i almost wished it was a different theme because all of these cards for different gears and all of the garage and pit etc they look very samey to me because they're all pieces of cars. And so I almost wish it was differently themed, not because I don't like the car racing part, but I guess I don't like the behind the scenes engine part as much. So I like seeing cars racing. I identify more with the ambition to be a pilot than with the engineering part, which is not necessarily true of all games like Kanban sounds like a fascinating theme but here in once I'm thinking of the race I prefer to focus on the cars but it looks like a very interesting game I feel like it plays a little different with more players because there's opportunities where you can move your car and not get anywhere as long as you are drafting behind somebody so if you're in the space directly behind them or some spaces can hold more than one car if you're on the exact same space then you don't take any wear to your car because you're drafting like you're catching the wind behind them so that's a little thematic rule that i enjoyed i like the replayability so there are different cards for the different cubes so we use the like intro set and so you can use different cards and so the blue cubes in this game might mean something but in a different game they might mean something else which are just relayed by the cards oh that's nice yeah and then the back of the board the board is double-sided it has a different track so there's a lot of different opportunities for replayability there i feel like i would not get easily tired of this game i'm glad it finally came off of my shelf of shame it was one of the first games that i've purchased oh and it was still in the shrink so it is to the table now officially and i am glad to say that it has earned its place on my shelf well it came out in the period between 2014 and 2016 where a lot of those car racing games came out there were car building and car racing it's interesting that this one hit the sweet spot between the two right it's a car racing with some managing your engine behind 
it looks very interesting and I look forward to trying it. Why don't we move to our theme for today, which is language-independent party games. And the reason we chose this was not so much out of a concern for the language accessibility, but more to narrow down a certain type of party games. So I felt that there was a difference between a game that challenges your use of words and the game that simply provides fun outside the normal conceptualization of language. And so it wasn't simply a, oh, so that you can play it with someone who doesn't speak your same language, because despite the fact that that has happened to me, I don't feel like that's a super common situation. I think what was interesting was I wanted to look at games that use unusual structures to make you think. And they do so in a very fun and quick way rather than a thinky strategic approach. Yeah, I agree with that. So I feel like the games that I was looking at have a lot to do with pictures. So what are some of the games that you thought of? My number three is probably Jungle Speed. Ah, yes. Jungle Speed, for those who who haven't seen it, is a stick in the middle of the table. That's basically the game. (laughs) Let me expand on that. There is this totem. It's this elaborated stick, probably eight inches tall and a couple of inches wide. And you flip cards from your deck in a way that you show them to other players quicker than you see them yourself. And you place them on top of your pile. And as soon as two people are showing the same symbol, they are supposed to grab the stick. Whoever grabs it gives all of their revealed cards to the other player. Whoever runs out of cards first wins. However, the trick is that most symbols are similar or similar among groups. And there are only a few that are actually the same symbol. And so there is a lot of running for it, grabbing it, realizing that you have grabbed it poorly, and then not only you get the cards of the other intended player that was not actually in competition with you, but also from everyone else at the table. And it's the same frustrating and hilarious. It's a quick reflex-based game. Good thing is that it takes five minutes. And I find it very fun. Yeah, I really like that game. It's very quick to play. Yeah, and I find it plays well in a party situation. And in um, newer versions, the stick has been replaced with a plastic quasi soft thing which i think it's very sensible and also takes away most of the dangerous fun for me (laughs) (laughs) but yes jungle speed is my number three for me number three is going to be codenames pictures fair enough for people who don't know codenames but if you don't know codenames why are you listening to this (laughs) so codenames is a game where you're in teams and you are trying to get your teammates to guess certain things and pictures replace the normal cards, which are words and replaces them with pictures. So you are trying to get people to point to certain pictures, trying to unify them, give clues that cover multiple things without including things that you're not intending. It's a good party game. I feel like Codenames is always a good game to play in a large group of people because it still lets you have input into decision-making, even in a larger group. The Codenames Pictures specifically is 
language independent because there are no words on the pictures. So you're trying to correlate cat in an ice cream cone with a fishing pole to <laughs> a pair of roller skates with wings. So there's lots of different things that you can try to relate them. And that's always fun to me to try and do. Yes, I think that what is really interesting about Conames pictures is how they created all of these pictures that are, as you were saying, weird and complex, but not with the approach of other games that we'll probably hear about with the more oniric, dreamy-like picturing. The pictures on Codename Pictures are very simple, very quasi-sketched, but they still put together interesting elements for people to discuss. I considered Codename Pictures, but then I realized that I was thinking of Codename Pictures because I had to move inside the realms of our self-imposed limits. I realized that it was, for me, a way of bringing Codenames in our self-imposed rules of no word-based games. And then I realized that I would rather play regular code names probably every time. And so that's why I left it out, not because I didn't like it. And if I had no code names, code name pictures would probably be an excellent choice for me. I do agree that code names and code name pictures are great. They work great with various number of teams. You can play it 2v2 or you can play it 6v6 without a strong change in fun. And that's great. So what's your number two? So with the caveat that I left out, everything that was social deduction, when I was looking at party games, there were a lot of social deduction games, which I do like. I like most of them with one main exception. And they certainly are not word-based in terms of graphics. They don't include a lot of words. Wait, 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 wait. One main exception. Now you have to say. Oh, yeah. It's uh, Deception Murder in Hong Kong. Oh, you don't like it? No, I even consider it for this because that's picture-based, but I felt it was more in the social deduction game side. I have a lot to say about that. It was a game that I was very excited because it brought together a couple of games that I really like from both sides of the spectrum. And it felt machinos. It felt I was more playing the rules than playing the game. For example, the fact that they use the images, but then they use those, oh, I can only give you certain pointers on this list of words. I don't understand the connection. If you're playing images, I want to play visually. And instead, if I am playing words, I want to be free to associate. While I have this list of possible clues that I can only put things on, and those relate to pictures that I haven't necessarily chosen, it didn't work for me. But that's neither here or there. The one I went to is a game that I don't own simply because I seem to like it way more than other people I ever played with. I mean, beside the people who bring it up. And that's Skull or Skulls and Roses or Skulls. Have you played any of those versions? No. So it's an incredibly simple game. The idea is that a game that you can play with beer coasters. And in the Skull version, they even look like beer coasters. They all look the same. On the back, you have your own symbol, which can be a beer coaster or a gang symbol, whatever the theme of the game is. And you have like five of these round things. And on the back, they have four empty or roses and one skull. So you start by placing in front of you one of these discs face down. Everyone places at least one. And then other people can either add more or they can call a certain numbers. And the number that they call is how many they think they can flip 
before they reveal a skull. So you could potentially put your skull on top of your pile so that if anyone dips into your pile, they immediately find the skull and they lose. But in that case, if they go with a low number, you have a very hard time to beat them. And it's a little bit like Dias Dice in which you have to overbid other players. So it's a very simple game, takes five minutes every time you bid and you get proven wrong you lose one of these discs and so you have fewer information about the total and you can play it while you're eating because you don't have dice to roll you don't have cards to draw you only have this little stack of discs and i find it very very fun and easy that sounds like a lot of fun i've never played it but it's always come up in games that i thought i might like I've seen pictures of it. I like the art of the skulls one with the like Day of the Dead skulls. Yes. And Dia de los Mortos. Yes. Yes, which I think is the current version is Skull. I think it's very easy, very fun. I know people who have made it out of, I think the version I played it the first time was a person that collected beer coasters, as I was saying, and they simply pasted the symbols on the back. But I think <laughs> it's very portable. It's easy to play it can be quite colorful the dia de los muertos one is fun the thing that has deterred me from trying this game is the player count so as you know most of my gaming is done in two players so it being a three player minimum i mean obviously now that you've described it i don't see how you would play this with two players but I think I would enjoy this game. I think this shines in not just the party situation, but the party situation where you wouldn't otherwise play a game. I remember playing it in a moment where we had stopped playing, we were eating, and someone said, why don't we play this? And I could see playing this at a restaurant with five or six is probably at best. So I think it's really probably the most party game on my list because it's specifically for when you wouldn't be playing games otherwise. And I think that's something to have. Yeah, it sounds like a good thing to have, should the moment arise. My number two game is going to be One Night Ultimate Werewolf. There is also One Night Ultimate Vampire and One Night Ultimate Alien, I think, but they are all the same concept. Oh, you can't forget One Night Ultimate Villains. Oh, fair enough. And... (laughs) All the iterations. So, One Night is a very quick secret role game where you are given a role at the beginning of the quote-unquote evening and everyone goes to sleep and people wake up during certain parts of the evening to complete certain tasks some people can look at other people's cards some people can switch people's cards some people do absolutely nothing which is boring And (laughs) some people are the evildoers, the werewolves. So those people are trying to get one of the villagers executed, and the villagers are trying to execute one of the werewolves. So that's how the different teams win. And the game plays really quickly. And I feel like when we play it, it gets played a few times, which kind of cheapens each play of it for me. But you know, maybe two or three times is right around where I want to play it. But it, like I said, the rounds play really quickly. It's not something that you really need to explain even before you play. The app is going to tell you what you need to do. So I guess that is a little bit language dependent. No, no, I think that's fine because the app 
could be someone explaining the rules. I actually really like that the app is there because before that I had to often lead new players to it. You can do it without an app. So, I mean, any game that is not played in silence has the need for language. <laughs> and I do really like the game. I do feel that you're right. That That's my problem with it. That sometimes is, oh, great. One Night to Dimmer Werewolf is an eight-minute game, and that's so great, and we just played it for an hour and a half. That's a little bit of a problem. I often think that it comes down to a quasi-random end result, though. I did choose my number one, which is Mysterium. Oh, I'm surprised. You don't like it? No, no, no. It's not that I don't like it. I'm surprised that you didn't pick Dixit. Oh, no, no. For me, Mysterium is what Dixit is with a game on top of it. And I do realize that Dixit might be more party inclined, but it's probably not the kind of party I want to attend then. Ouch. (laughs) No, I'm joking. I like Dixit, but Dixit is very group vulnerable. Well, that's my number one. Okay, so Dixit is great. It has great art, and it's based on a great idea. Well, do you want to explain what Dixit is for those who haven't seen it? Sure. You are playing a card from your hand and giving out a category that describes your card. You want the description to be good, but not so good that everyone guesses it not good but not blatant you need a couple people to not guess yours otherwise you do not score any points the goal is to get some people to guess it the fun of the game comes from hand management where you're trying to look at your hand and say okay well this kind of fits what they said (laughs) or this has nothing to do with what they said but I don't know when I'm ever going to use this card and then you curse the sky when next turn it would have been the perfect time to play that card it has a lot of little fun moments i agree it does have some limitations based on what kind of group you're playing with i feel that's my problem with dixit so dixit by jean-louis rubira has fantastic art i think that was what pushed the game to the forefront marika dua's art is dreamy but also at the same time, very visually powerful. And then they got Pierrot on board for Odyssey and others. And all of the art is stupendous. And at the same time, it has this childish dream feel to it. The reason I was saying I feel it's fragile is twofold. First, I have seen people struggle with this in a way that you shouldn't struggle with a party game. There is a certain way of thinking that doesn't click for someone and it cannot teach. At least I have a very hard time pointing out you should do this differently because they give clues that make sense when they are explained or vice versa, they are too transparent. And how do you tell someone, oh yeah, you had a very good clue for your card, but it was too obvious. What does too obvious mean? Or vice versa, too obscure. And the second one, which I think is a more serious problem with the game. The first one is an unfortunate consequence of a actually very smart design. But the second part, it is a little weak. So there are certain ways of breaking the game that you can avoid. For example, we had friends who used to, not in order to cheat, say things like, oh, the protagonist in the movie we saw yesterday, or that place that we visited with the Frank last week. There is zero ways for anyone else at the table to know what you're talking about. And at the same time, there is 100% certainty for you to know what I'm referring to. Or, for example, if Anna and I were to play and give a clue in Italian, because you technically can give clues as noises, you can give any clue that you want. So obviously, there are certain ways in which you are definitely trying to cheat, right? If I were to speak in another language or make a reference that I know there is no way for you to know. But then there is all of the, we refer to Star Wars, and when 
we refer to Star Wars, we assume that is in popular culture, but you can get way more narrow. What if someone refers to Greek classical literature? Or I once had an uh, acquaintance make a reference to Patrick Sushkin's The Parfum, a great book, but one that not everyone has read. And so she mentioned the name of the character. I happened to recognize it. Now I couldn't tell you the name of the character. And I clearly knew what her card was. But so where is the limit? And I feel Dixit tend to work better for people who are not really invested into it, which I know it's a party game, but it is a problem for me. I feel like that is what I consider to be a party game. It's like limited investment into something or that people are like how you're talking about skulls that that game can be played in a different kind of setting. So that is what I kind of look for in a party game. When I think of party games, I don't really think of people who have extensive gaming experience. So I try to look for things that have easy accessibility with limited rule explanation. I agree, but my problem is that you don't need to be, oh, now I think how to game this thing in order to encounter those problems. Someone could refer, let's say you play with someone who's in your literature class with you and you bring it to a party at college and there are five other people who are not in that class, as someone goes, oh, favorite book that Jonah mentioned. They are not trying to elaborate and devise a complicated way to trick the game. Or if I refer to an Italian movie with Anna, or if you go to... Uh, a very specific musical reference or a K-pop reference. You're not trying to think of how to break the game, and yet the game does break down. And I think that's a problem specifically for a party game. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's why, for me, taking this very imaginative, very great idea of communicating through images, the way they did it in Mysterium was great. I remember when Mysterium by... Alexander Nevsky and Oleg Sidorenko came out. It arrived in the US still in the Polish version. This is not pronounceable for me. Tajeminske Domotsvo. And I apologize if anyone knows how to pronounce that better than me. Worse is difficult. And it took my gaming community by storm. I think what it did right was taking the idea of Dixit of look how suggestive these images and how we can connect them and build the game upon it. The theme is you are investigators and a ghost of a murder person is communicating to you details about their own murder. And so there will be a set of character cards. And then the ghost has vision cards that look very much like cards from Dixit, very oniric, very weird. And so I give you a card that has a white dove in front of a gate. And that represents someone. So it might represent the nun because the white dove reminds me of the white veil. Or it might represent the iron worker because there is an iron fence. But maybe the iron fence has a point. So maybe it's the soldier because it's a spear. And you don't know what the ghost is telling you. The ghost can only tell you this is the card for this player. Cannot tell you anything else. Actually shouldn't say anything even that. And then you try to guess among those characters and everyone is guessing. So when someone guesses, the pool is reduced. And if you figure out who your character is, you move to your location. And then again, they give you a card that has a book on a staircase with a statue and a bright light on the background. And the statue is a lion. So are they talking about the zoo? Are you talking about the library because there is light coming from the window? Or is this staircase the main important thing? Everyone is trying to guess a character, a location, and a weapon in order. And if everyone makes it in seven choices, they have a final vote together and 
it's a cop. So everyone is trying to do it on their own pace, but everyone is trying to get there so you can help each other. That's also nice because you can discuss the interpretation of the cards, something that you cannot do at all in Dixit. And I think not only it adds a game, but it adds new dimensions of visual interpretation. The one thing that goes against this is that this is not a pure party game. This is definitely not one that you can play around the table while eating pizza. And I do realize that that's a limit, but I think that makes it for a great game for people who are not gamers. I have played it with anyone and a great game that is definitely not language-based. So did you know that they are releasing a new version of Mysterium this year? I saw it, it's Mysterium part, and I don't understand what the lure is, maybe the different cards. I don't understand what is supposed to make that is new. It says you can enjoy the heart of Mysterium in a more condensed way. It's smaller and faster thanks to very quick setup and simplified rules. Also, probably this will be even more party game-ish. For me, I like Mysterium where, it, where it's at. I really, really like it. So I will take a look at this, but unless it takes it down to, oh, I can play it at the table while eating pizza or while eating wings, I don't think I need this. Also because I like the haunted mansion more than the freak show or whatever the theme of this one is. But more Mysterium is always better. Maybe I can throw the cards in. I don't know. I probably would enjoy Mysterium Park better just because I feel like Mysterium sits in a weird place for me as far as who I want to play that game with because I really want to play it with more gamer people because it is a co-op whereas like Dixit is not a co-op true but this is a co-op scenario so I really want everyone to do well and if you have one person who's sitting there and not guessing and not interpreting their clues correctly or understanding exactly how the game is played then I feel like it can really drag the experience down Mm -hmm. but maybe that's just me I can see that and indeed there is a need for games that struggle that line go away from the a lot of explanation a lot of steps and I feel I might not be the best person in general to do this list and that's why maybe my top choice is weak because I feel that sometimes in our community we try to inject games where there shouldn't be. I have certainly been guilty of that with friends and family but I have realized by seeing some friends especially in Italy doing it more than we do it that sometimes you have to accept that it's fine not to be playing a game as much as hard as it is for me and so i think that that's why for example i do like skull a lot but i don't own it or i haven't played jungle speed that much because those belong more to a time in my life where i felt that if i were with friends and i wasn't playing they were missing out and i was missing out so i'm very happy when i can inject games in my day and that's why well those would have been ruled out by the no language rule but i wouldn't have wanted to put in all of those games that ask you to pair things up in a funny way in order to have a laugh because i like to laugh with my friends without the driving force of a game and so i think that while you're absolutely right that mysterium for example is a little overblown or vice versa that skull doesn't offer that much of a game experience i think it's because i am coming in my quarantine days of aging to realize that maybe sometimes I can tolerate a party without a game. (laughs) Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I guess I don't understand the demographic to which Mysterium is best played with. 
I find that it's good at the beginning or end, like most of these are. At the beginning of an, of an environment where people are still gamers, but you are like, okay, why don't we start with something light? Or while we wait for dinner to be ready, why don't we crack out? this. It's in the interstitial space of a gaming experience. So it is when the gaming become party rather than when you want a party to become games. Yeah, I get that. All right. So I think that brings us to the end of our episode. We thank you so much for listening. If you have enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your friends. You can find us on Instagram at Board Game Gambit. We are also on Facebook, Board Game Gambit. And now this podcast is being distributed to multiple sites so it can be found on spotify it can be found on a lot of different things so if you enjoy it please share it with people because they may be able to listen to it on a different platform so with all that in mind thank you so much i'm nathan thank you for your attention i'm jackie and see you next time bye-bye